0: Good evening. More than 11,000 people are now thought to have been killed in southern Asia after an undersea earthquake sent enormous waves rolling across the Indian Ocean. The quake measured 8.9 on the Richter scale, the biggest in the world for 40 years. Waves up to 10 meters high engulfed the coasts of many countries. The quake's epicenter was off the island of Sumatra in northwestern Indonesia, where more than 4,000 people are thought to have died. In Sri Lanka, officials say more than 3,000 people have been killed and more than a million affected. In southern India, 3,000 people, mostly fishermen, are reported dead. At least 300 have been killed in southern Thailand, including some tourists, and hundreds of people are missing. And waves swamped the low-lying Maldive Islands, leaving the capital Mali two-thirds underwater. Gareth Ferby reports.
1: This was Sri Lanka, as the seawater flooded inland. Thousands have lost their lives here. And government officials say more than one million people, around 5% of the island's population, have been affected. The flood water came inland for several hundred meters. Some victims were washed away as friends and relatives screamed. Sri Lanka's Natural Disaster Management Centre says it may be the worst disaster they've experienced.
0: Wave, another tsunami wave moving toward uh, the Japanese coast.
1: It was uh, so strong that I knew there was going to be tsunami. That's why I told uh, my uncle, you have to be prepared In within five minutes, in worst case, tsunami. So let's run. When I saw tsunami actually coming, overwhelming the riverbank, it was completely anti- unanticipated. You know, there was some uh, information telling us three meter high or six meter high, but in fact, it turned out to be sixteen meter high. So ten meter more, you know. And when. I went to the top and turned back. The whole place was underwater, like under the sea, yes? We thought this was a film. This was just a dream, really. Nightmare. You know, it looks like a computer graphic scene, you know? Oh, this is a film. Maybe we are dreaming. And for many days, we thought and we hoped this was a dream. And each time we come and see, The same scenery, devastation, and still we can believe, even today.
2: Deep below the surface of the Indian Ocean, near the west coast of the Indonesian island of Sumatra, two portions of the Earth's crust, one called the Burma Tectonic Plate, one called the India Plate, which, until 7.58 a.m. on December 26, 2004, had been pushing against each other for the past 1,000 years. One plate, actually the India Plate, finally gave in along a 1,000-mile fault line creating a huge fissure in the sea floor as it slid under, or subducted as it's properly called, beneath the pressing Burma plate, suddenly displacing trillions of tons of water and rock beneath the ocean, causing powerful shock waves in every direction, the first being the initial killer wave that would introduce death and destruction to 14 countries within the coming minutes and hours, causing over 230,000 deaths and unimaginable destruction of property. One of the worst, if not the worst, natural disasters in history in terms of lives lost. And sadly, one for which no one received any warning. The energy released on the Earth's surface by the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake was equivalent to 26 megatons of TNT, over 1500 times greater than that of the Hiroshima bomb. The only recorded earthquakes known to release more energy were the 1960 Chilean quake and the 1964 Alaskan quake. The Chilean earthquake generated a tsunami that was destructive not only along the coast of Chile, but also across the Pacific in Hawaii, Japan and the Philippines. And the Alaskan quake, which is the largest quake in U.S. recorded history. The series of earthquakes which struck Alaska's Prince William Sound registered 9.2 on the Richter scale and the tsunami wave it generated took hundreds of lives. In 2011, the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, the most powerful earthquake recorded in Japanese history, a magnitude of 8.9, struck in March of that year. The tremors were the result of a violent uplift of the sea floor, 80 miles off the coast of Sendai, where the Pacific tectonic plate slid beneath the plate Japan sits on. Tens of miles of crust ruptured along the trench where those two tectonic plates meet. This was the sixth largest earthquake in the world since 1900 when seismological records began. The largest tsunami waves measured by instruments in the water were seven meters, nearly 23 feet high, in the northeast of Japan according to the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center in Hawaii. Japan, no stranger to quakes or tsunamis, tsunamis being a Japanese word meaning harbour wave, had invested heavily in coastal protection and buildings that can withstand tremors. Nevertheless, ports were pounded by the tsunami and the airport in Sendai was inundated. Nuclear power plants were shut down across the country and a state of emergency declared at the Fukushima nuclear power plant, where a cooling system failed and a meltdown of major proportions occurred. In a country that is well prepared for earthquakes and tsunamis, the 2011 Tohoku Tsunami still took over 5,000 lives. In parts one and two of Tsunami, we'll discuss the cause and effect of the most dangerous of all of nature's destructive forces, tsunamis. We'll provide you with eyewitness accounts, tell you how, why, and where they occur, what's being done to warn populations in high-risk areas, and answer the looming question for many of our American mainland listeners. That question being, can tsunamis occur in North America? Will they be a result of the San Andreas Fault Line? Why are all these tsunami warning signs appearing on our California highways? Is the big one coming? Those living on the west coast of the U.S. mainland have become familiar with tsunami escape route signs along the coastal highways and tsunami siren tests in low-lying coastal cities like San Francisco. Earthquakes and tsunamis can happen along almost any coastline at any time of the year, but Alaska is particularly prone to them because it sits on the convergence of two tectonic plates, the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. At this boundary, the Pacific Plate slides beneath the North American Plate, causing the majority of Alaska's earthquakes, including the 1964 earthquake. There are approximately 25 continental-sized plates described by scientists as floating beneath the Earth's crust, and there are many smaller subplates that occur just off the coasts of continents, and these plates constantly push against each other far beneath the surface of the oceans and the land masses. It's easy to mentally picture everything below as a solid rock with not much going on, but in the big picture, the Earth is a dynamic huge ball with its own inner stresses and turbulence. One visit to Yellowstone National Park with its geysers and steaming pits or Hawaii with its active volcanoes, will convince you of that. During the 1964 Alaskan quake, Alaska's continental shelf and North American plate rose over 9 meters during the earthquake. This sudden displacement of the ocean floor, along with earthquake-induced landslides, generated massive local tsunamis that resulted in 70% of the fatalities in southern Alaska. The tsunamis created by the earthquake reached land within a few minutes of the ground shaking and engulfed some areas as much as 170 feet above sea level. Scientists measured a wave run-up of 220 feet in the Valdez Inlet. Tsunami waves generated in Alaska and in the subduction zone located off the coast of Oregon and Northern California have reached as far away as Hawaii and Japan. While Japan-inspired transoceanic tsunamis have swept across the Pacific in the opposite direction, causing loss of life, extensive flooding, and damaging harbors along the North American Pacific Northwest coast, coasts and estuaries sustained millions of dollars in damage. The major threat to the Pacific Northwest and Northern California, where we have many listeners to this show, is the Cascadia Subduction Zone, which is an area which has been under intense pressure for a long time. Although many earthquakes occur along the San Andreas Fault Line, these have not generated large tsunamis. If you've driven Coastal 5 up anywhere north of Mendocino, California in recent years, you can't help but see the tsunami warning signs along the highway directing you to higher ground. Always be on guard when you hear radio reports of a 9.0 or larger quake, which are rare, but one of which we just experienced a week before I wrote this in Mexico. That might have been an 8.9, but that's close enough. All the scientists were watching Mexico very closely to see if it would generate a tsunami, and thankfully it didn't. The epicenter was land-based, not ocean-based, reducing the probability that it would cause a tsunami, but not eliminating it. Most of the news in the U.S. during this time was focused on the approach of three hurricanes to the U.S. mainland, led by Hurricane Irma, an event which hasn't occurred here for many years thanks to what has basically amounted to at least a 10-year major hurricane drought. Beginning as a fast-moving wave less than a foot in height, the Indian Ocean Tsunami, also known as the Boxing Day Tsunami, which took place following a massive earthquake on December 26, 2004, was rolling fast. By the time it reached the coastal communities of Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand, it was cresting at 90 feet high, about the size of a seven-story building. Imagine yourself now standing at the shoreline from which all the ocean has just strangely and quickly receded and gazing out three or four hundred yards and seeing a hundred foot tall wave coming at you. How much time would you have to make it to the eighth floor of that resort hotel behind you? That's one for you numbers people out there. I'm guessing loosely knowing the speed of that wave now nearing the shoreline is about 30 miles per hour. Let's see how many feet per second is that you have about seven minutes to make it to the hotel stairs and up at least eight floors and then of course the hotel you're in will have to withstand not only the initial impact and that of the following waves but the carnage of buildings cars trucks the ground floor interiors of the entire resort city including your hotels and god knows what else which the first wave has uprooted and is pulling back out of your resort city and back into the ocean It is a disaster on a scale that is hard to imagine unless you take time to watch the video shot by survivors who were witnesses to the carnage. And it's out there. It is terrifying. It is so graphic you would think it was the product of some videographic design experts. But it's not. It's real. The peoples inhabiting or visiting the coastlines and islands of the countries of Malaysia, the Maldives, Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and further to the west, Madagascar, Somalia, and Kenya on the east coast of Africa, were caught completely unawares, with some exceptions, the most notable being the 78,000 inhabitants of the tiny mountain island of Simiuli, which was located just 60 kilometers off the coast of Sumatra, not far from the epicenter. In their rare language called Divayan, they had a word pronounced Smong, around which a song and legend had been created a long time ago. A legend that was tied to their very survival and taught to every child on the island for generations. The song and legend go something like this. Please listen to this story. One day in the past, a village was sinking. It started with the earth shaking. And then all the water washed out far from the beaches, as far as you could see. Many people went to gather the fish and the shells and walk where they had never walked before. But then they heard a rumbling sound, and turned to look, and then came a giant wave, followed by more giant waves, and all the country around sank beneath the water. Only those who climbed up the mountain survived. Always remember that when Smong comes, head for higher ground, fast. Smong is your bath. The earthquake is your swing bed. The thunderstorm is your music. The thunder light is your lamp. Research on this island tells us that a huge section of the population was killed in 1907 when the last tsunami came. The warning had been embedded in the minds of all the children effectively so that when the 2004 tsunami came, 97 years later, with powerful waves 50 feet or 15 meters high, the miracle being that only seven lives were lost. The entire population found high ground within minutes of the time the sea disappeared. In the aceh Besar province of Sumatra, similar stories existed with the folklore, but had not been taught as warnings. When a 100-foot-high wall of water hit a much more vulnerable, less mountainous Banda Aceh in 2004, 15,000 people, most of the population, were killed. The destructive power of these monstrous waves is almost incomprehensible. The Indian Ocean tsunami traveled as much as 3,000 miles to Africa, arriving with sufficient force to kill people there and destroy property. A tsunami may be less than a foot in height on the surface of the open ocean, which is why they're not noticed by sailors. But the powerful pulse of energy travels rapidly through the ocean at hundreds of miles per hour. Once a tsunami reaches shallow water near the coast, it is slowed down. The top of the wave moves faster than the bottom, causing the sea to rise dramatically. The Indian Ocean tsunami caused waves as high as 50 feet in some places, according to news reports. But in many other places, witnesses described a rapid surging of the ocean, more like an extremely powerful river or a flood than the advance and retreat of giant waves. Within hours, the submarine killer waves radiating from the earthquake zone slammed into the coastline of 11 Indian Ocean countries, snatching people out to sea, drowning others in their homes or on beaches or businesses, and demolishing property from Africa to Thailand. Tsunamis have been relatively rare in the Indian Ocean, at least in human memory. They are most prevalent in the Pacific. But every ocean has generated the scourges. Many countries are at risk. In terms of travel time, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami took only 15 minutes to reach the northern regions of Sumatra, 90 minutes to reach the coast of India, and two hours to reach Thailand, and there only because the waves were slowed by the shallow Andaman Sea off the west coast of Thailand. The nearly extinct Anji tribes on these islands survived, thanks again to local traditions that held warnings of what to do when the water receded. Those warnings saying basically, Run like hell to high ground, because it's coming back hard. Despite a lag of several hours between the earthquake and the resulting tsunami, nearly all the victims of the 14 affected countries and dozens of islands were taken by surprise. There were no tsunami warning systems in the Indian Ocean to warn the population in 2004, for a number of reasons. That is a very poor part of the world, and tsunamis are very rare in the Indian Ocean. Efforts have been made since 2004 to install warning systems and inform the survivors of ways to protect themselves and their families from tsunamis. The tales of survival and loss from the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which will follow soon in this story, are heart-rendering. On Makayo Beach on northern Phuket, Thailand, a 10-year-old Brit tourist named Tilly Smith had studied tsunamis in geography at school from her teacher Andrew Kearney at Danes Hill School in Akshot, Surrey and recognized the signs of the receding ocean and frothy bubbles. She and her parents warned others on the beach, which was evacuated safely and quickly. John Croston, a biology teacher from Scotland, also recognized the signs at Kamala Bay north of Phuket and quickly took a busload of vacationers and locals to safety on higher ground. The 2004 Indian Ocean Tsunami first struck the west and north coasts of Sumatra, Indonesia, particularly in the Aceh province. At Yule Lue and Banda Aceh. a survivor described three waves, with the first wave rising only to the foundation of the buildings. This was followed by a huge withdrawal of the sea before the second and third waves hit. If you've ever surfed or body surfed the ocean surf, you know that you'll get a good wave after you feel the strong pull of water hit it out as it passes your feet and legs, because the incoming wave is pulling that out to gain its extra height and strength. Much the same with tsunami waves, only to a much larger scale. These will pull you out a quarter mile to create a 100-foot killer wave. You would be toast out there in that water. Following the huge withdrawal of sea that the survivor first witnessed, the second and third waves hit. These were as high as or higher than the houses. One resident living on higher ground, one mile from the coast, said the tsunami was like a wall, very black in color, with a distinct rumbling sound as it neared the coast. On Banda Aceh, the area of town closest to the sea, was wiped clean of nearly every structure. The flow depth was at a level of the second floor, and there were large amounts of debris piled on the streets and in the ground floor storefronts. A rare live video shot of this tragedy taken by someone who had survived and was in a safe location, shows a narrow city street with a river full of building debris, so thick with debris you couldn't see the water in some places, with people clinging to the debris as it all was being pulled back toward the sea, cars and trucks being sucked along a fast-moving river through the little main street of the town, with rafters, metal roofs, lumber, small houses, people floating by, some still alive, Others screaming, others clinging desperately to floating structures, others losing their grip and slipping below the surface into the deadly moving garbage pile as it was pulled back out to sea, only to be picked up and thrown back toward the coast by another huge wave later. A hellish bad dream. The population in nearby Lohunga dropped from 7,800 to only 400 in one nightmarish moment. There was no time and no escaping. The wave onslaught and scene of devastation was so massive that it seemed as if people were miniature toys suddenly thrown into one end of a huge, dark, debris-filled bathtub, where someone had pulled the plug on a large drain at the other end. In Maloba, Asse Special Region, survivors reported the sea receding about a third of a mile, then returning with a rush, followed much later by a larger second wave, and still later, a third wave as tall as the coconut trees. Helicopter surveys showed entire villages entirely destroyed from the coast to miles inland, leaving only mosques standing. In all, Indonesia alone suffered 126,473 dead and 93,943 missing. The major islands of India worst hit by the tsunami were the South Middle and North Andaman Islands, which were hit just minutes after the earthquake. Waves here reached nearly three stories high, devastating the Indian Air Force Base near Malacca. In this chain of islands, Catchall Islands suffered the brunt with a population of 5,312, with 303 confirmed dead and 4,354 missing most of whom were never found or impossible to identify after they were found. In Sri Lanka, located 1,056 miles from the quake, the Indian Ocean tsunami first arrived on the eastern coast two hours after the quake, telling us that the waves traveled at a speed of 500 miles per hour, and they suffered three main waves, the second being the most devastating at 37 feet tall and managing to derail and overturn a passenger train taking 1,700 lives, making this the largest single-rail disaster in world history by death toll. Sri Lanka suffered 31,000 dead, 5,600 missing. Thailand's province of Pang Nga was the most heavily affected area of that country, the central part of which contained several tourist hotels, which were destroyed in 20 feet of water, taking everything below the fourth floor. At Petong Beach, a tourist mecca, the tsunami heights were 19 feet and the depth of inundation was 6 feet. Here, as with many other areas, the second wave was the tallest and most deadly. On mainland India, the tsunami arrived on the southeast coast in the states of Andhra Pradesh and Tamil Nadu shortly after 9 a.m. Tamil Nadu would suffer 6,051 fatalities caused by a 15-foot tsunami. People out walking the beach in Chenia were swept away. In Karaiko, a black and muddy wall of sea ravaged the city, killing 492 people before they knew what hit them. It would take another two hours to reach the state of Kerala, where it tore inwards up to one-half mile and affected 153 miles of coastline, destroying everything in its path. 3,100 miles away from the epicenter of the Indian Ocean quake, in Somalia, Eastern Africa, 289 casualties were reported as a result of four huge waves that struck without warning, with deaths also occurring on the shores of Kenya, the Seychelles, and Tanzania. In all these areas, and we've only spoken of a portion of them here, the fishing and tourism industries were devastated, leaving survivors with no way to rebuild, And usually, No family. Relief agencies reported that up to one-third of the 280,000 estimated deaths were children, partly due to the fact that large families tend to populate poorer regions and also because children are less able to resist being overcome by surging water than taller, stronger adults. A relief agency named Oxfam reported that many more women were lost because their husbands were out on the water working at that time of day fishing being the major industry of most of the areas that were affected. They, in their boats, were out far enough that the waves were just fast-moving swells, unusual enough to be noticed by many of those fishermen who talked about them later, but not known by most as to what they could do once they neared the coast. Tourist season was in full swing at that time of the year on the resort areas lining the Indian Ocean, and up to 9,000 foreign tourists, mostly Europeans, lost their lives the nation hardest hit being Sweden, which lost 543 to the killer waves. A tragic account from a Swedish tourist who survived the devastation follows in this story. The last major tsunami in the Indian Ocean occurred back around 1400 A.D., according to research done by a team of scientists working on Frathong, a barrier island along the hard, hot west coast of Thailand. A second research team working on the northern tip of Sumatra found similar evidence through carbon dating. The most deadly tsunami before 2004 was the 1908 Messina earthquake on the Mediterranean Sea where an earthquake followed by a tsunami killed nearly 123,000 people. The 2004 Indian Ocean quake and tsunami left 2 million people homeless.
3: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? Dot com, and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Here are some of those eyewitness accounts. Luke Simon was a teacher on the Thai island of Phi, spelled P-H-I dash P-H-I. We hadn't seen the sea at all that morning. The first thing we knew was when people came running into the cafe where we were having breakfast, knocking over tables, chairs, and even people. We couldn't help but panic, because everyone else was panicking. We joined the masses and ran out of the back of the cafe and into the market. Outside, there was chaos. People were running in all directions, and there was a lot of screaming. It was like being in a horror movie, but we had no idea what was going on. Someone said in Thai, Water come! Water come! Ahead of us, the shoreline was bubbling and boiling. One wave had struck and refracted around the headland, forming another wave of about seven meters high that came from the opposite direction, smashing the resort we were in to smithereens. It was suddenly really, really windy. We ran down an avenue of shops, and the last thing I remember shouting was that someone had to get high up, and then I was on the roof of a garage. I can't remember getting up, It was one of those moments when your body takes over. When it reached us, the wave wasn't water. It had ripped everything out of the ground. Corrugated iron, glass, door frames, fridges, microwaves, sewage, trees. I've always described it as a moving landfill. Sophie, the girl I was seeing at the time, was pinned between the two walls below the roof I was on. She says my brother Piers was underneath her, trying to hoist her up. I tried to pull Sophie up, but the water and debris rose up her body, up her neck, and up her face, and then over her arm. Then I was just pulling at this hand underwater. The whole thing happened in about three or four seconds. Somehow, miraculously, something dislodged her, sucked her down, then mercifully spat her out further down the alleyway. I was quite lucky in a sense because I was so focused on Sophie, and she survived. If I was more aware of my surroundings, I might have seen Piers getting struck and being washed away, and that would have been much harder for me to deal with. I got Sophie up onto a high roof and could see my friends Ben and Nick were safe. Where's Piers? I said, but no one knew. He was gone. At that point, the island was pretty quiet. I found myself shouting Piers' nickname, Lloyd. We spent an hour up there shouting. My brain started to put together sentences I would say at Piers' funeral. I couldn't stop myself. It was very strange. I thought he would have clung onto a building somewhere and would then make his way into the hills as we did. We'll meet him up there, I said. I realized straight away that I might not find him alive, but I knew we had to remain constantly hopeful. Piers and I were very similar and very close. We lived together, worked together, and played together as brothers We never really settled down with anyone because we had each other. When we left home and lived together, we joked that we needed an engagement party so we could get some stuff for the house. Our search for peers lasted five days. The Thai people were amazing. They handed us polystyrene pots of food and lent us mobile phones. One Thai girl who was helping me had lost 20 members of her own family. On PP, 1,500 people died and between six and 700 were never found. So we were very lucky to find Piers, lucky in one way. A friend called and said he thought body number 199 in a makeshift morgue was wearing the pale blue shorts Piers had on. My shorts, in fact. We then had a very strange conversation about the difference between sky blue, midnight blue, and navy blue. In the end, it wasn't Piers. I heard cheering on the other end of Mom and Dad's line when I delivered that news. Then we had to sit down in the morgue and watch a slideshow of dead bodies. It was a more dignified way of searching rather than lifting up plastic sheeting and looking at them. If a body had a wrong color t-shirt, we didn't look at them. We were chatting away, and then body 348 came up. It had a red Oakley t-shirt, and I just said, Oh. I wanted to see him, but a forensics woman said, No, you're not going. That shouldn't be the last image you have of Piers. I didn't have the energy to fight, and in hindsight, I think she did me a favor. When you drown, your body becomes a sponge. You absorb everything, so most bodies in the morgue don't look like people. My friend Ben confirmed the body, saying that Piers' neck was badly cut, and that was probably what had killed him. Ten years after, I see the tsunami, how I've always seen it, My memories of those five days are still fairly vivid, I guess because I've told the story so many times. I'm very lucky that I don't have a problem talking about it. There are so many stories that it has become one of those things you want to commemorate. It's a bit like 9-11, but on a much greater scale because of the volume of people that were affected. Not only the people that died, there are a huge number of people here in Scandinavia who were massively affected by the Indian Ocean tsunami. And we're just one small country. There were over 500 Swedish victims alone. And there's a story of Olivia Seddon, then 17, who was at a beachside hotel with her parents in Sri Lanka when they were trapped by the tsunami. Ten years feels significant. Ten is a nice round number. It almost feels like something should be coming to an end, but it's still such an important part of my life. I am a bit nervous talking about this, like I won't do the experience justice. I feel that I got away so lightly. I wasn't even in the water, that I don't have the right. I found the first anniversary difficult. I was working in a pub at the time and chose to work all day to keep busy. I don't like being caught off guard with it, so when I see something in the news about it, I find it quite jolting. It's hard to connect what I'm reading with my own experience. So much has happened in 10 years. I was 17 when it happened, and I'm 27 now, and my life has changed completely. But at the same time, it was a very defining moment. I think of my life almost as pre-tsunami and post-tsunami. I fell in love with Sri Lanka before the tsunami happened. In that week of our family holiday, I had already decided it was somewhere that I'd like to go back to. We got to the beach on Christmas Day, and we were going to spend a week or so there before flying home. My memories of Boxing Day are actually very patchy. I have a few very strong images, but the timeline is confused. I woke up in the morning and thought there had been a big storm. Some of the sunbeds were overturned and the pool was muddy. I didn't know at the time that the first of eight waves had hit. I never actually spoke to my parents about the experience to confirm what happened and what didn't happen. I think I was with my dad eating breakfast down by the pool. We heard this roaring noise and it got louder and louder. I looked up and through the trees and could see this massive white horse, the wave, coming towards us. My dad just said, leave your food, run. We ran and managed to get up to the second floor of the hotel. There were eight waves and the third crashed completely through the ground and first floors below us. I don't know if the people on the floors below us survived, but I think quite a few people did manage to get up high because that first wave might have been a warning sign. One moment that stays with me is when the wave crashed through the floors below, hearing the glass shatter and people screaming and at that point realizing This is really bad. My life is in danger. Seeing people climbing trees and seeing people swept away, hearing people screaming in different languages and not understanding. You heard that scream that people only have when their life is in danger. We were trapped on the second floor looking on for about eight hours. I was feeling absolutely terrified and the waves were getting bigger. We knew that if that water reached us, we didn't really stand a chance. We were so lucky that the hotel we were in was a big modern building with strong foundations. I was really anxious that the foundations would go at some point because we were just being pummeled over and over by the water. To get out of the hotel, we just had to chance it when the waves got smaller and further apart. We had a driver on the holiday and he was the only person we knew in Sri Lanka, so my dad rang him. At that point, we thought the waves might have just affected our part of the beach. We had absolutely no idea it had affected the whole Indian Ocean. Our driver was amazing. His own brother's house had been destroyed, but he still drove to the hotel to help us. I remember looking out of the back of the hotel and seeing devastation. Everything looked flattened, yet somehow we still managed to drive to Colombo. That's one of the memories that I struggled to make sense of. We were very lucky to get on one of the first rescue flights to the UK. Back at school, my memory was terrible. I was having driving lessons and I remember getting back in a car and just forgetting how to drive. When I went to pay for things with my debit card, I'd forgotten my PIN number. I decided to have therapy about three months later. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. I didn't feel the need to talk about it. It was more like I'd heard therapy could help. It was almost a last resort. The tsunami was quite an isolating experience. I knew that people close to me were upset to think of what I'd been through and I didn't want to upset them even more. Water was a trigger for me for a while, and big patches of water still arouse memories because they seem so powerful. But once the experience became less raw, I was able to control my own thoughts and feelings. I knew quite early on afterwards that I wanted to go back because of the devastation that I'd seen and feeling so lucky and guilty that I survived. A year later, on my gap year, I went back and volunteered at an orphanage and spent time going to the tsunami camps. I've been back three times since, so I still feel bonded to the country. Life still feels quite fragile. I definitely don't feel invincible. It's left me with a fear of flying and of being in cars. It's sometimes just as simple as being in the wrong place at the wrong time. When the waves came, there was a really big rock out to sea which took some of the brunt of their force. If that rock wasn't there or I wasn't able to run as fast as I could, it could have been so different. I still struggle with guilt that I survived when others didn't, which sounds almost ungrateful. But something I want to emphasize is that positives have come out of the situation as well. I have perspective. As long as I'm happy and healthy, that's fine. That's all I need. It sounds trite, but I guess I have an appreciation for life and I don't take it for granted. I am genuinely grateful every day that I'm here. And this story from Steve Gill, co-chair of the Tsunami Support UK, a group for people affected by the tsunami. Exactly how I got out is still a mystery to me. I was actually under the waves and was swept away, and to all intents and purposes, I had accepted that I was dead. I was in Phuket, Thailand, with my wife to meet my new in-laws because we were very recently married. It was a kind of second honeymoon. We were on a bungalow on the beach when the waves hit, and she was killed. It happened, and I know for a fact that it will always be a part of my life. It is difficult for people who are now part of my life who are not involved, because they have to accept that there is something that they can't fully relate to that has a major impact on me and the way I think. Most people who look at the tsunami from the outside don't really understand, and that's one of the main reasons Our organization was created. It gave people somewhere to come and talk about what had happened to them, to people who understood, to whom they did not need to explain. Initially, when our meetings took place, they were quite happy occasions. I know it sounds quite strange to say that. The feeling of release was so great, and planning the memorial at the Natural History Museum gave people something to concentrate on. With survivor organizations for other events, there's often something to fight for. With an air disaster or an insurance case, there's a legal process to go through. But you can't sue a tsunami. There's nobody to blame for what happened. The impact is no less, but there's nowhere to put the anger that is part of the grieving process. Grief varies from person to person. Some of the differences manifest themselves in the breakup of families. For example, if a child is lost and the parents don't seem to be able to match their grief together. It would be very simplistic to say that people move on. I think what happens is that your life moves on, whether you like it or not. The more time you spend on the earth, the more different people you meet and the more connections you develop. And so, if you find yourself living your life to the full, inevitably, the tsunami will take up a smaller portion of your concentration, time and emotions. But for the kids who have lost parents, when they graduate from university or get married, the person who should be making the speech will not be there. That peculiarly shaped hole in your life is the thing that no amount of talking to somebody else will ever help with. Lisa was setting off on a trip around the world, but was caught up in the Boxing Day tsunami. After bringing her body home, the former mayor of Surrey Heath founded the Lisa May Foundation with his family to raise money for those affected by the disaster. Most people don't talk about it when they lose people, particularly children. You always think your children are going to live longer than you. It gives me some comfort that when people hear I have a daughter who died in the tsunami, they say, Oh yeah, my daughter died in a car crash, or my son had a brain hemorrhage. And you would never know. They keep it to themselves. In 2004, we had a few fantastic days in a five-star resort for my daughter Nicola's wedding. My other daughter, Lisa, was a bridesmaid. Although she was 25, Lisa hadn't really been traveling so she stayed on PP to start a round-the-world trip. She'd sold her car, given up her flat, and got rid of all her possessions to maximize the money she had. We left Lisa with massive baggage to carry. It was so heavy that I took some of her things out and brought them home with me and waved her off. We were expecting to hear from her over the Christmas period, and we woke up on Boxing Day to find out that there had been this massive tsunami. And then, of course, your hearts are in your throat. We phoned the consulate and all that sort of thing, but of course they were all on holiday. So I decided to just get on the first plane I could and get out there. From then on, I don't think my phone was off. I was basically waiting for a call until we found her and brought her home in January, which was pretty harrowing. With Steve, Nicola's new husband, I went on to P.P. and got kitted out with SARS masks because of the stench of the bodies in the heat and started walking around the debris. At this point, it had certainly hit me that Lisa might be dead. We searched all the photos of lost and found people, those message boards, and we hadn't found anything. We started looking where we thought she might have been in the rubble, but there were already a lot of body bags lined up on the quay, being shipped back to Phuket to put in a morgue. We found out from one of Lisa's friends that she had broken one of her front teeth when she was malarking around before Boxing Day, so she had been to the local dentist, and there was an up-to-date picture of her teeth. We went to find the dentist and get a copy. We went to the morgue in an old temple in Phuket, had DNA swabs done, and handed over all the records. At the same time, they put up a list of bodies and what they were wearing. One of my daughters recognized that some of Lisa's clothing had been listed. Lisa May sounds very much like a Thai name. Lisa sounds Thai, and May sounds Chinese, so the authorities thought she was not a Farang, the Thai word for European. They had moved her body to a cemetery, which I went to with my brother, who had flown in from Los Angeles. That's when I sort of freaked. A JCB had basically dug a mass grave, and they had all these bodies wrapped in white in the grave alongside each other. They hadn't filled it in yet, thank God. I felt in a state of numbness. The bodies were awful. They were like Buddhas, almost, and blown up. They were all sort of purple and green, because they were obviously rotting. It was surreal, like you were on another planet, but everyone was rushing around. All I can remember was the smell of the morgue. I got the people from the High Commission to start talking in Thai, and they had arranged to remove Lisa's body from the grave and ship it back to the UK. It's not very easy to talk about, to tell you the truth, even though it's ten years after. Throughout, I was feeling extremely tired. I left my phone on for weeks, just in case Lisa called but the press would keep calling me to ask if I'd found her. Trying to get a bit of a scoop, bless them, they meant well. Every time I'd fall asleep, I'd get another call, but the adrenaline kept me going, and I suppose the purpose did too. We have to find her. We have to get her body home. We have to have a church surface and say goodbye. We were able to do that by mid-January, and it was after the hiatus died down that the real grief seemed to come at you in waves. You thought, my God, it could have been worse, as we might have never found her. I think saying goodbye was very important. It was important for all her friends. A month before they'd waved her off, and suddenly she comes back in a casket. So we set up a charitable foundation to try to help restore life to some normality in Thailand. We were one of the group's first in with the money, and raised around 60,000 pounds in the first six months. It bought around 39 boats for fishermen to get back to work. And we put some physiotherapists out there and tried to help with things like school uniforms and fresh water. Small things, but everything we could do with the money we put together. I know the charity helped with my grief. One felt one was doing something, and we've really kept that going. We still support other natural disasters as we can, but when I was mayor of Surrey Heath, I saw so many local charities that needed help, so we continue to help them through the Lisa May Foundation. It's quite amazing how all those areas in Thailand have recovered. The hotel that we were staying at for the wedding is back, and good as new. The Thais are very resilient people, and they have this reincarnation concept, so they simply accept things. I occasionally talk to people whose sons and daughters are doing the same as Lisa did out there, sitting on the beach at PP sending postcards to their friends, saying, This is a wonderful, idyllic place. It brings me comfort in a funny sort of way. It says that life has to go on. Lisa was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and hopefully those other young people will go on and will succeed. The 2011 earthquake off the Pacific coast of Tohoku, Japan, was a magnitude 9.1 undersea megathrust earthquake that occurred at 546 UTC on Friday the 11th of March, 2011, with the epicenter approximately 70 kilometers east of the Yoshika Peninsula of Tohoku, and the hypocenter at an underwater depth of approximately 29 kilometers, or 18 miles. The earthquake is often referred to in Japan as the Great East Japan Earthquake, and is also known as the 2011 Tohoku Earthquake. It was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan, and the fourth most powerful earthquake in the world since modern record-keeping began in 1900. The earthquake triggered powerful tsunami waves that reached heights of up to 40 meters, 133 feet in Miyako at Tohoku's Iwate Prefecture and which in the Sendai area 10 kilometers or six miles inland. The earthquake moved Honshu, the main island of Japan, eight feet to the east shifted the Earth on its axis by estimates of between 10 centimeters and 25 centimeters, and generated infrasound waves detected in perturbations of the low-orbiting GOCE satellite. On March 10, 2015, a Japanese National Police Agency report confirmed 15,894 deaths, 6,152 injured, and 2,562 people missing across 20 prefectures as well as 228,000 people living away from their homes in either temporary housing or due to permanent relocation. A February 2014 agency report listed 127,000 buildings totally collapsed, with a further 273,000 buildings half collapsed and another 748,000 buildings partially damaged, and that in a country where much of the construction had been upgraded to withstand earthquakes and tsunamis the devastating earthquake and tsunami of 2011 also caused extensive and severe structural damage in northeastern Japan, including heavy damage to roads and railways, as well as fires in many areas, and a dam collapse. Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan said, In the 65 years after the end of World War II, this is the toughest and the most difficult crisis for Japan. About 4.4 million households in northeastern Japan were left without electricity and 1.5 million without water and many stories came out of that disaster google's person finder the missing persons website set up for that earthquake led one desperate father astray on saturday listing his daughter alice byron as among the dead in the wake of the tsunami that hit northern japan after several frantic hours alice's father ashley got friends in japan to confirm that the entry was a hoax After calling the hospital listed with his daughter's name, Alice's friends discovered that the doctor's name was fake. Other people had been victims of the same hopes, according to Alice's employer. Alice eventually used a satellite phone to send a message to her family saying, safe, evacuated to town hall center, love you. In this story, Hiromitsu Shinkawa, 60, saw the tsunami approaching and ran home to gather his belongings. Before he knew it, his home was destroyed and he was swept out to sea on what used to be the roof of his house. No helicopters or boats that came nearby noticed me. I thought that day was going to be the last day of my life, Shinkawa later said. Finally, after two days at sea, he was spotted by a rescue ship an amazing ten miles from land, waving a red flag he had made himself. Upon being hauled onto the ship, he gratefully drank a glass of water and then broke into tears. Shinkawa's wife is still missing. And this story. As soon as the quake hit, Harumi Watanabe closed her shop in Shintona, a now-ravaged coastal town, and drove straight to the home of her elderly parents. But there wasn't time to save them, Watanabe said. They were old and too weak to walk, so I couldn't get them to the car in time. Watanabe was with her parents in their living room when the tsunami's waves hit. She held their hands, but the waves tore them apart. The last thing she heard was them yelling, I can't breathe. Watanabe herself barely survived. I stood on the furniture, but the water came up to my neck. There was only a narrow band of air below the ceiling. I thought I would die. In the coastal town of Mina Misanriku, half of the population is still missing three days after. 9,500 people. Chosin Takahaski was working at a local government office when a tsunami warning went off and 13foot waves hit most people ran away she recalled some had to leave the elderly or disabled behind on the second floor I think a lot of those left behind probably died three days later 42 people were pulled out of the rubble alive but another of the town's residents is still haunted I saw the bottom of the sea when the tidal wave withdrew and houses and people were being washed out. I couldn't watch anymore. Get out of there now! That's the cry Ayumi Osuga heard from her husband outside as she was in her room practicing origami with her three young children, all between the ages of two and six. Osuga ran to meet her husband, packed up their kids in the car, and sped away to a hilltop where her family had a home. My family, my children... We are lucky to be alive, she said upon returning to her home. I have come to realize what is important in life. Many of those around her were not as lucky. Next door, rescue workers found the body of her neighbor, dead in the fetal position at the bottom of a stairwell. You can almost always count on the movies to over-dramatize natural disasters, and tsunamis are no exception. However, the destructive power of the tsunamis is so visually hard to fathom that one can't differentiate between the actual videos and the work of videographic illustrators. It's that unreal looking. We have added video links in our show notes so you can see the actual destructive force of the tsunamis. There have been dozens of movies made that show tsunamis destroying cities, probably the most accurate movie showing the effects of tsunamis and the ensuing struggle to survive them, that being the movie titled The Impossible, made in 2012 and directed by J.A. Bayona. The Impossible is based on the experience of Maria Bailon and her family, who were vacationing in Thailand when the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami hit. The cast includes Naomi Watts, Ewan McGregor, and Tom Holland. The film received positive reviews from critics for its direction and its acting, especially for Watts, who was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress Motion Picture Drama, and a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Female Actor in a Leading Role. In the film, Henry Bennett, played by Ewan McGregor, and his wife Maria, Naomi Watts, and their three sons, Lucas, Thomas, and Simon, go on a Christmas holiday in 2004 to Keolok, Thailand. Arriving on Christmas Eve, they settle in and begin to enjoy the brand new Orchid Beach Resort. Two days later, on Boxing Day, the massive 2004 tsunami, inundates the area. Maria and Lucas eventually emerge from the swirling water and find one another, with Maria having sustained serious injuries to her leg and chest. They help a young boy, Daniel, from the wreckage and are soon found by locals who transfer them to a local hospital in the city of Tacuapa. Daniel is separated from them during the journey. At the hospital, Maria encourages Lucas to help others find their family members while she goes into surgery for her chest injuries. Director Juan Antonio Bayona decided not to specify the nationalities of the main characters in order to create a universal film in which nationalities were irrelevant to the plot. The tsunami was recreated with a mixture of digital effects and real water surges filmed in slow motion, created in a water tank in Spain, using miniatures that were destroyed by a huge wave. Bayona committed to working with real water rather than a computer-generated wave because he wanted the story to be authentic. This meant Watts and Holland spent five weeks filming physically and psychologically demanding scenes in a massive water tank. Sixteen-year-old Holland later described it as a scary environment. You can imagine how tiring and brutal that was. Review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes gave the film an approval rating of 81% based on 183 reviews with an average rating of 7.3 out of 10. The site's critical consensus reads... The screenplay isn't quite as powerful as the direction or the acting, but with such an astonishing real-life story at its center, the impossible is never less than compelling. Roger bear of the Chicago Sun-Times gave a perfect four-star rating, praising the performances of Watts and McGregor and the direction of Bayona. He called it one of the best films of the year. Simon Jenkins, a British survivor from Portsmouth, wrote to The Guardian stating the film as beautifully accurate. This was in response to critics commenting that the film is over-dramatic and whitewashed or using a white family's tragedy for a chance of greater box office success. Those scrawny white cavemen who emerged from the caucuses half a million years ago wielding American Express cards and wearing designer animal skins must have just set the known world on its ear. Oh, if I could just sit in on a college history class today, it would actually be exciting to hear all the revisions taking place a literal tsunami of revisionist history. But back to the film. Jenkins says of the comments, As I must, I've never been the sort of person to revisit and analyze events of the past, but some of these articles frustrated me. Had this film been purely about the tale of a Western middle-class family's ruined holiday, then I would have agreed. For me, it was the exact opposite. Rather than concentrating on the privileged white visitors, The film portrayed the profound sense of community and unity that I experienced in Thailand, with this family at the center of it. Both for my, then, 16-year-old self and the Balon family, it was the Thai people who waded through the settled water after the first wave had struck to help individuals and families. The Thai people had just lost everything, homes, businesses, families, yet their instinct was to help the tourists. How true of the Taiwanese people! And well said. Another movie called San Andreas, starring Dwayne Johnson, goes way over the top in showing 100-foot-high tsunami waves approaching and destroying San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge, and then the city. In the past century, tsunamis were fairly rare. We've had two major tsunamis already in the past 15 years. It appears as if the 21st century is bringing an outbreak of tsunamis. Is it just a coincidence? It appears as if Earth is going through some dynamic changes beneath the crust. Could they be caused by underground nuclear testing as countries like Iran and North Korea are constantly testing huge nuclear bombs? And could a bomb detonated by a hostile country in a fragile underwater subduction zone create a devastating tsunami? Could a large tsunami hit the west coast of the U.S.? Could a big one hit California? What areas would be affected, and what is California doing to ensure the safety of people in those areas? How about the East Coast, the Gulf and Florida, or the Caribbean? Is there a warning system in place? What are the tsunami hotspots, and how often do tsunamis strike? How can you protect yourself from a tsunami? And what areas of the world have alert systems? These questions and more, along with more stories from tsunami survivors, will be covered in Part 2, Tsunami. Are you ready for the big one? Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Well, that's it for this week. But remember that the second half of this story is coming in the next wave. We launch every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Apple usually comes aboard around 8.30. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.